Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I think of the ego as the bouncer outside of the club of your identity. (laughs) And his job is to let in the things that reinforce what you want to believe about yourself and to keep out the things that don't. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everybody. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the role of ego and identity in the future of work and in org change and figure out, you know, is it holding us back? What does it mean? What is ego? How do we think about it? How do we get beyond it? How can we get out of our own way? So uh, with that in mind, we'll get on with the show. But first, before we go anywhere, we like to check in. Let's do it. All right. Our check-in round question for today is if you could choose one hobby that now seems out of your reach, either financially or time-wise, what would you take up and why? Aaron, you start us off. So I once um, did cave swimming in Mexico. <laughs> That's not and... what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sorry, carry I mean, on. Like, we, you know, we, we, we think about these things. Um, no, I, I, I was down with a group of other entrepreneurs uh, that were sort of randomly assembled. And somebody was like, hey, there are these, you know, cenotes that you can go swim around in. And I'm not a very good swimmer but I am somewhat adventurous. And I was like, yeah, I want to see what that's all about. So it was not scuba or snorkel or anything like that. But you you went in and you basically swam from cave to cave. And there was a little bit of underwater time, but mostly above above water, you know, wading. And it was just beautiful. It was kind of epic and weird. And you felt like you were in like the womb of the earth. And I don't know, it was pretty, it was pretty transcendent. So I think if I had unlimited means, I would kind of go from location to location doing a bit of that and probably a fair bit of eating along the way. Sure. I mean, swim off those tacos. Um, I have, <laughs> I have swum in many a cenote. They are very magical. Uh, That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. You can't mm- have my hobby. You have to pick your own. Oh, don't worry. Mine is better. Uh, so if I, this is more of a time wise than a financial thing, but I'd really love to learn how to upholster furniture. Like I just, Really think it would be a great skill because I love interior design. I'm in the process of redoing a house. Um, where that house is, there's all of these old flea markets and like really rural swap meets where people bring antiques and stuff like that. But also really old horrific upholstery is both unattractive and completely freaks me out. Yes. So the idea of being able to like breathe new, more hygienic and more aesthetically pleasing life into antique furniture is very appealing to me. <laughs> this is what you should do. I can I can picture this store now. Do you think? 
Yes. Is this yes. my second act where I like do tarot readings and also sell rehabilitated furniture? That's perfect. Yeah. All right. I like cool. It a lot. Stay tuned 10 years, everybody. That's what I'll be up to. <laughs> In the meantime, uh, ego and identity. The, the tension that we often talk about is that um, lots of effort goes into stoking or stroking rather um, egos. In, inside the organization and that we're putting all of our energy into kind of managing personalities and that gets in the way of doing the real work. So what do you think about that? Where have you seen it? Um, what's the what's the antidote? So first of all, I love that you said stoking accidentally <laughs> because in our work, we end up doing both in such equal parts. You know, we're right. so aware of the stroking that happens and also we agitate and stoke ego so, so frequently every day, it, those, those things feel actually like they're both in the work that we do. Um, I would start by talking a little bit about my own experience with this actually, before even diving into where I see it in the world, which is that as a previously very unconscious leader in my own organization, I mm -hmm. had so little awareness of really all of this stuff. And amazingly, you know, I was working at a leadership consultancy, so shame on me, <laughs> uh, but shame on all of us really, because this is just not a topic that comes into the popular consciousness too, too often. It, it is more and more so I think all the time, but right. I, I saw a talk, I was at a, I was at a thing and I was seeing a lot of really great speakers and I saw a talk by someone who is very deep in a particular type of therapy who really explained, uh, what psychological flexibility is and how mm -hmm. it relates to ego and identity. And I felt like something in my mind just like broke open. And I was like, this is this is it. Like, this is all, this is all it is. Like, this is all that right. human is suffering is, is what this guy is talking about. And so then I just went so far down the rabbit hole on starting to understand what the difference is and how to make decisions from a place of values rather than ego and what self-awareness is. And I started teaching about it and all of that stuff. What is the difference? There are a couple ways to explain this that I've found useful. One is to really understand what the ego is. So when you say ego, what do you, what comes up for you? Like, what do you think of? I just sort of think of that like inside voice that's sort of trying to look out for me and get what's best for me and get what's mine and like, you know, kind of protect me from the world, right? Yeah, which is a very uh, aware understanding of what the ego is. So I think of the ego as the bouncer outside of the club of your identity. <laughs> and his job is to let in the things that reinforce what you want to believe about yourself and to keep out the things that don't. And That's so right. when people say that guy has a big ego, I just think like that guy has a big, big bouncer, bouncer. <laughs> and that bouncer doesn't let much in. Much reality in. Much reality in, right? And and how this plays with leaders is the more power you assemble in any system, whether that's a political system or an organizational system or a family system, the more you are able to hire a real big bouncer and hear less and less truth all the time. That's right. So that's one way of explaining it. The other thing that I often say is like, there's there's usually for most of us, a quieter voice that is the voice of our values and the right. voice of what we really believe in. And I think of them like the cartoon devil and angel on your shoulders. Right, right, and right. the ego voice is sort of loud and it is sort of like 
maximize yours and don't listen. They're all wrong. And the values voice is like, what if that were true? Like, what if that were true of me? What is really important to me here, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how I think of the difference. But until I understood that there was more than one voice to listen to and that they stood for different things, I was basically just a maniac as a leader. Like I, I completely ruled by ego and I was very well rewarded for that because I picked and cultivated and worked in a system that Doug, that sort of that thing. prioritize that kind of power. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Exactly. The um, there's a book that we enjoy, or at least I've enjoyed recently, around the ready called "The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership," and they talk a lot about being above and below the line. And for mm-hmm. them, the line is basically: Are you in a state of defensiveness and commitment to being right, and kind of like reacting to what you're hearing in that way? Which I would say is a very egoic way of being. Or are you above the line, which is like curious and committed to learning and kind of being open and and basically like getting rid of the bouncer? Like, do you, is the bouncer in the way or out of the way? And, and while I think you're right that they are sort of two different angels of our nature, I sometimes feel like it's kind of a binary switch flip in my head that like Mm. either one is on or the other's on. I very rarely feel like I hear both at the same. Really? Yeah. Like I'm either, if I'm in my defensiveness, if I'm below the line, then that's the loudspeaker. Like that's, that's what I'm in. And then if I catch myself and I, and I breathe and I step out of it, then I can, then I can flip to the other, to the other guy, but I very rarely hear them arguing. You know what I mean? Unless maybe I'm making like a, like an ethical decision or something. Right. Right. That's so interesting. For me, it is much more of a tennis More schizophrenic. You've got. (laughs) Yeah. Where I'm really like, who am I? Who am I listening to here? Who's who's driving? Uh, so that's that's interesting. Um, I am less familiar with that book and all of its tenets than you are, but um, I know it's something that you've personally committed to. What are some of the what are some of the lessons that you've taken from that that you think are helping you and your ego to to cope and survive? Well, I think the the thing that's surprising and kind of counterintuitive is. When you do have the bouncer out, when you are below the line, when you are defensive and kind of committed to being right and committed to protecting your current sense of self, it's actually quite uncomfortable. Like the world is the world is assaulting you all yeah, the time with things that right. are like kind of challenge that. And it's, it just feels very stressful um, right. and very anxiety producing. And so I think that the most surprising thing for me in having done some of some of that work lately is when you actually step away from that and you take in and you kind of allow that openness, it actually ends up being like everybody kind of rolls with you better and things unfold better. And you actually feel like the world is more working with you than even though nothing's changed, right? The only thing that's changed is the way you're kind of showing up, but it almost feels like the, um, like everyone's more willing to cooperate with you and, and what you're trying to accomplish. So it's a very subtle distinction, but I just find that I'm less, I'm less agitated when I'm in that state of mind, even though I should be more agitated because I'm taking in all this reality. Sure. Sure. But, but it's the whole, like what you resist persists thing, right? So when you are coming from a place that's above the line or in your values or whatever, and you can maintain that flexibility and that curiosity and that openness and whatever, the effort of trying to avoid the hard truth goes away. And like, I have a lot of conversations with, um, my husband and with our coworkers and with 
people outside in the world that we work with where uh, because I've done a lot of this kind of work, I'll find myself getting agitated about something. And you and I have had these conversations. <laughs> and I'm now such a self-reporter that I'll be like, here's what I'm very frustrated about this thing. I am aware that this is my own problem. I'm taking responsibility for it. Here's the values conflict that I'm experiencing. And also I just need to say it out loud because it's like, I'm past the point of being like, this is a problem. Aaron, solve it for me. Or Ed, my husband, solve it for me or universe, solve it for me. I'm like, all the problems are my problems to solve. I created them. I can also solve them. And sometimes because I'm a human being, I just need to tell you about them and have you be like, I hear you and I see you because I, you know, I'm not perfect. Uh, But it's funny how when you get to the point where you can just be like, and this is because my dad was an asshole. So there it is. This is happening. Like life just becomes a lot easier. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think um, in some ways, like whenever I'm working on anything, I think just like saying it out loud, naming it more often, just like bringing it to everyone's attention is a helpful tool. So I'm, I'm always appreciating when you're doing that. It begs the question, though, I think, you know, given that that's you working on your own tensions and your own challenges, what is how does this talk of, you know, ego and identity connect to to change? If you're trying to change your organization from being a more bureaucratic place, a more hierarchical place, maybe a more zero sum power distribution. um, What is like, how does this all matter there? It matters so, so much. And as I was thinking about this conversation, something occurred to me that I've not really considered before. So what, one of the big things, one of the big challenges about identity, right, is that we need to protect it. So with a lot of the CEOs that I work with and I've worked with in my career, there's a thing there that's like, people don't say, I am currently in the role of CEO. They say, I'm a CEO. Right, I am a. And then- And then when they, or I'm pro-choice or I'm a Democrat or I'm whatever, I'm a wife, I'm a whatever. And when you lose, when you identify in such a fused way with that, and then it's taken from you, Mm -hmm. it's really, really difficult to grapple with. And it's very, very assaulting. And the bouncer is like, what just happened to us? How did you strip me of my very being? And in doing transformation work, we're basically doing that all day long. So we're not, we're not allowing people to just sit in. This is the decision I've always made. This is the title I've always had. This is the way I've always done it. We're asking people to consider new ways of everything. And for most people, I think there is a pretty like somatic reaction that says you are taking something from me. Right. You're moving the building behind the bouncer. Exactly. Exactly. And they would really prefer that you would just stay on the curb smoking cigarettes where you belong. Yeah, it is. It brings to mind too, when you said that I'm a CEO thing, I also know that like people say the a lot too, like I'm the boss. Right. Right. Like not not even a, I'm the boss. So there are no other bosses, just me. And Yeah. yeah, the buck stops here. Right. So then the ins, the weird insight that I had is we're asking people to do that work to be more flexible, to hold their power more lightly, to hold their meetings more lightly, to experiment in all these ways that feel uncomfortable. And at the same time, we're asking them to be staunch defenders of this new idea that might be threatening to them and to hold and protect space and to be unwavering in their commitment to transformation. And like, 
that's a really tall order that we place with those people, (laughs) right? (laughs) Why am I always so frustrated about it? That sounds like, yeah, it's quite a huge lift. Uh, Is like be super flexible, like let your bouncer go on a break. Also, we need you to commit to this in a very um, intentional and serious way, even though you don't know what it is and it seems super scary. It kind of, it's funny because I think when I, when I reflect on the reactions I've seen from leaders and myself in this work, um, it, it might, reminds me of like the Buddhist thing about attachment, which Mm -hmm. is basically just like how attached am I to any of it, to what happens next, to the outcome, to the, and I feel like one of the things that we screen for and train for in leaders is actually intense attachment. Yes. Like like we are gonna climb the hill. And yes. I'm so attached to that that like it's like I'm going down with the ship, right? The whole idea of going right. down with the ship, right? Like the captain right. goes down with the ship. They're attached to these outcomes. And so when you're like, what if we just, you know, steered continuously? And what if we just let the strategy emerge? And what if the outcomes, you know, unfolded differently than you expected? And it's kind of like, yeah, that's not what we do here. Of course. And how And how scary is that? I mean, we also have to, I think, acknowledge that historically that is what we have promoted and held up and supported and rewarded for leaders. And that is what the systems around them are, right? Right, So in so many ways, doing transformation in a way that is participatory, that is never ending, that is small moves, that is continuously steered is like, it is upending not just an egoic uh, identity, but but everything about the system and everything about leadership history. And it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it it's certainly a lot. Is. It's yeah. a lot to ask. So what are some of the things like for you? So this is not your first rodeo in terms of leading a company. Um, so either for you or for people you've worked with who are in a similar situation to you, what are some of the things that have allowed you to do that Buddhist detachment so necessary to observing one's own ego? So the way I always think about this is that it's hard to let go of something and let go of that attachment as a first step. There's a lot of work, I think, that goes into kind of building that new identity and, and that new way of being. So one of the things I often start with is just thinking about it in terms of a trade. Mm-hmm. Um and the trade is like, well, what do I, you know, what am I trading and what am I getting? And so sometimes the trade is just, hey, you know, let's trade one form of control for another kind of control. Mm. So in in the book, in Brave New Work, I talk about the roundabout and the traffic light. And I, and yes. I say, you know, wh- who has more control, right? The person controlling the lights or the person designing the roundabout. It's like, oh, well, if you, if you care about the outcomes you get, the designer of the roundabout has better control. They actually get better outcomes in most cases. Mm-hmm. So they have more control, but it's a very different kind, right? It's that sort of like mm-hmm. setting the table kind of control as opposed to the control of, you know, telling everybody what to do in the moment. So you have to kind of identify with that. So I just tend to think of it in those terms. Like, what can I trade you that will let you, you know, keep hang- holding on to that Dumbo feather of, of identity a little bit, but 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 for something else. And then over time, through the work that we do and the conversations that we have and working with coaches and things like that, maybe you can just let go of that attachment altogether. But in the meantime, 
if, at least if I can make you a good trade, right? Like I'll trade you the hard right. and fast policies that say no to everything for like transparency that just shines a light on everything. And like nothing's going to get by you because everybody, it's all out in public. Right. So it's about this game of like, let me take that thing you have, that stick, and we'll just replace it with something that's a little bit more supportive of our, you know, human need to work in this new way. And along the way, maybe we can put down some of that attachment as well. Right. And most coaches that I've worked with in my life, and I was certainly trained in this way too, is as someone is considering those trade-offs to just ask the question like, well, how, how well is this working for me now? Right. Like, yeah. yeah. Is this, this thing I'm attached to, like, how's that going for well, us? And I think that's really true. There's a lot of mirages of like, you know, it feels good to make the one year plan, but does it ever actually predict anything or help anything? And I think, you know, I didn't, I didn't like everything in Ray Dalio's book principles, but the one part I did like a lot was when he just said like, when should you reevaluate your principles? Uh, whenever you're not getting the outcomes that you want, you know, whenever, yeah. whenever life isn't going the way you're expecting it to go, take a look and see like, are any of these principles no longer serving me? Right. And, and do that evaluation. Right. An another hack that I use for myself a lot, and I'll give you a really basic example, but when I started learning about this stuff, one of the things that I learned is anytime you're doing one of those controlling or sort of egoic behaviors, there is a value present under it. Mm -hmm. And I was telling you the other day, you know, we're training our dog on this electric fence, which is new and he's not a puppy and he's very stubborn at this new house. And we, I was going to let him go for the first time on this on Monday it with the collar and we had done the things that we were supposed to do. And I started to get very like grippy about it and was just like, Oh my God. And what if he runs away? And then we have to get in the car and how am I going to find him? And what if he gets hit by car? And like all of these things. And it was very much my ego, like being like, right. You know, what if you lose him? What if you're a bad dog mom? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if like anxiety brain. And I just stopped and I was like, okay, the value under this is that I love my dog. Right. Right. What if we just stop and say, like, I love my dog. Gosh. Okay. Like the rest of it is just noise. my brain being really busy. It's really noisy. There's a very straightforward value here, which is I love my dog. And then and then being able to say, like, I love my dog and I don't want ha him to have to like never go outside again. So here we go. That's the trade-off we're gonna make. And there's that fear that I think we see in organizational change too of like, if this doesn't go well, let's say the dog did get away and we didn't see him again or whatever, then that is that threatens your identity as dog mom, as good dog exactly. mom. Exactly. What right? would that say about me? Right. And in reality, it's like, maybe it doesn't, you know, and maybe we can let go of that a little bit. And maybe your identity is something you get to choose and not something that's based on what happens to Banjo. Although, you know, God love Banjo. I mean, but, yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that's important. Okay, so look, uh, we've we've come to the point in the show where we've identified some of these themes. I really like where we're headed, but I think we should get another voice in the mix. Who are you thinking? Okay, so my own coach, uh, his name is Gareth, who has taught me a lot, a lot about this and has written a book about this very topic that I refer to all the time. I just think talking to him about his own journey would be really interesting. That sounds awesome. Uh, ready, set, go.
And we are back, as we promised we would be, with a guest to talk more about ego and identity and how it shows up. We are joined by my coach and friend, Gareth Holman, and uh, he is a really wonderful coach who knows about this stuff much more deeply than we do and, uh, and who has taught me most of what I know about it. So we're really excited to chat with him today. Uh, Gareth, you want to just give us a little intro? Uh, sure. I'm a psychologist by training, and I'm a coach and consultant. I work in Seattle and LA, and I'm part of a partnership, actually, a coaching partnership called Co-Evolve. Awesome. Nice. So, Gareth, uh, you had the uh, opportunity to listen to what we talked about before before you came on the show, and so I think I just want to start with this uh, with the basic question of, you know, how do you think about ego and identity compared to maybe what you heard us batting around in the in the previous twenty minutes? Yeah, I mean, I think the big theme you were circling around that's really right on with how I think about it too is that when we're talking about ego, we're talking about how are we balancing the different forces that are acting on our minds, internal forces mm-hmm. like our, our own needs and identity and external forces like other people and their meddlesome opinions <laughs> and so on. <laughs> and then the thing you really got to understand about ego is, is that when we're acting from ego, we want to be right. We want to reduce uncertainty. We want to maintain a sense of coherence. In other words, that things make sense. And much of the time when that sense of coherence gets threatened, Humans have this instinct to defend themselves or attack or right, resist right. somehow. That explains a lot of the behavior you see between people when they're not feeling safe, um, when they're feeling challenged. I mean, look at politics, for example. <laughs> for I mean, for example, like can't imagine. So, you know, I think we know some of that intuitively. And certainly as I've self-reported in, you know, past iterations of me, I came from much more of a place of ego. Um, And even as that was happening, it didn't always feel great or authentic or particularly generous or humane. So why do we do it? Like, why, why are we that way if we, if it doesn't feel good to us? Yeah, well, and it makes sense that it doesn't feel good, right? Because you're operating from a place of threat. And, you know, your body and ultimately the universe doesn't give a shit how you feel. The priority was to survive, right? And the most important thing in terms of our survival was to respond to threats, and in particular to respond to social threats and be able to maintain our status and power within the group and not get kicked out right. or abused by other people. So that whole threat system that, that you're feeling when your ego is threatened has deep evolutionary roots. Given that that's the case and it's sort of the default state, do you feel like it's possible to evolve beyond that and to what to what extent so like you're you know you being a a guru in the space how how many times a day do you do you catch yourself having an ego pretty constantly yeah just like kind of playing from a place of that defensiveness or that reaction you know that kind of not self-aware place i would say it's a constant practice in fact like (laughs) it's funny i went to graduate school to become a psychologist i feel like i personally didn't even clearly understand a lot of this stuff until I was like five years into a doctorate in psychology. (laughs) And today I'm constantly humbled by like, there's a difference between teaching this stuff to other people and practicing it yourself, first of all. Sure. And so while I might be, you know, fairly fluid at teaching it to other people or walking other people through it, I'm constantly humbled by how my own practice is radically different than coaching other people. Right. So yes, for me, it's constant. 
like doing a podcast, for example, poses various threats to my ego. <laughs> Us too. So like what, <laughs> what are some of us, I mean, some of us more than others, let's be honest. Um, what are some of your practices? Like, obviously you've, you've worked a lot on cultivating flexibility. Like what, what, do, what are some of your pro tips? When we're talking about ego, it's not just a cognitive practice or intellectual practice. You know, our experience of self is very much a combination of our thoughts, like sensations in our body, urges to respond. It's yeah. a very visceral experience. And our bodies, our minds are always dancing with each other. And so overcoming ego is very much a practice of being able to experience all these different parts of yourself and your reactions, um, holding it all, and then still being able to remember what matters and respond with some flexibility. It's funny you say that because I, I have found myself in the last couple of years hearing more people talk about, you know, how does this feel in my body or how does this show up in my body? And at first, my, my reaction to that was very kind of dismissive. Like, can we, can we just like be intellectual about this and not, you know, not be so hippy dippy about it? But what I've learned is that, um, uh, you know, I sometimes in order to identify how I actually am thinking about something or how I'm going to process it, I do have to know how I feel. And we're so used to sort of steeling ourselves against that, that we, or at least in my, you know, in, in my experience, kind of suppress a lot of that and we don't check in with it. So to say, Absolutely. you know, just to say like, hey, I'm just going to notice how I feel all the time and then play from that, from, from that awareness is actually like kind of groundbreaking in a way. Like it definitely opens up doors to being like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm nervous about this or I'm uncomfortable about that or that I'm feeling defensive now, now can I be with that? Like now am I okay with just being defensive or do I want to be different? And it gives you that, I don't know, the fork in the road, I guess, to, to play from. So I'm coming around to that. I'm coming around to it too. <laughs> I share that experience where it seemed like uh, mystical and just ungrounded in the beginning. Like, why would I, why do I have a body? Why do I need to do it? <laughs> and yet I've had this experience too. Like one of my favorite practices right now is I, I sit and I meditate. And I was initially told to meditate just for the sake of being still. Mm. And yet when I started doing it, the most compelling experience I had is that if I have a problem that's stressing me out and I sit still for 15 minutes in my body, inevitably I'll find a new and creative way to see that problem and way to respond to it. What is happening there? Yeah. How does that work? You know, I can't say I know for sure, but the way I think about it is as you sit in your body and in your mind, the habitual avoidances or you know rigidities that you're running through gradually relax because you stop stimulating yourself and things tend to settle down. And as your mind settles down, there's space for something new to emerge or for clarity to emerge. And I don't know why that happens. I know that it just, it happens reliably for me. In fact, I used to get frustrated because I used to meditate for 20 minutes and around minute 10, I'd get a new idea that I felt really compelled to write down. It's like reliably, minute 10, bam, there's the idea. But I had 10 minutes left on the timer. So now I tend to meditate with a journal next to me. What this conversation is sparking for me is just a broader question of like why our systems, be they like political or in many ways social or certainly uh, organizational, um, why they have over over indexed so much on intellect and cognition and and sort of pushed 
like the emotional realm and certainly like somatic and physical realm into a kind of like stigma almost in a, in mm-hmm. a lot of these places. Like where was that fork in the road? Because a lot of what we're talking about is like, you know, centuries old tradition. Yeah. Uh, and yet, and yet here we all are going like, is it bullshit that we have bodies? Like, <laughs> is it bullshit that we have feelings? Do we need those uh-huh. in our families or our jobs or our, uh-huh. you know, or our churches or whatever. So I don't like, when did, why did that happen to us? It's the patriarchy, man. Yeah, dude. It's <laughs> always the patriarchy. I don't know. I mean, I think the answer is there's tremendous power in our minds and in our ability to disconnect from our emotions and, and get things done and organize things, right? Like the economy and money and organizations that can scale massively. Those are all largely products of the mind and our ability to master our emotions. The problem is that um, there's a downside to letting the mind dominate things, especially in terms of, you know, our ability to cooperate with each other and feel safe with each other and take care of ourselves. I work with a lot of people from Amazon and Facebook and Google, and those are organizations that seem to be built around the idea that you can be the most successful organization by squeezing the maximum amount of labor out of people, right? Even at the cost of burning them out at probably a known rate. You run their minds as hard as you can. You stress their bodies out. And that's a way to really get a lot of shit done. Mm-hmm. I think that that is very accurate. And there's so much there's so much pride attached to that kind of like efficiency and frankly, burnout. I don't know. I think there's uh, there's that like heroic that heroic overwork culture that is very persistent in oh, yeah. particularly large bureaucracies. The other idea that you had in the the title was ego and identity. We've been talking mainly about ego. Identity is a really interesting one. This this idea of heroic overwork, right? A mentor of mine told me this amazing joke slash Zen Cohen the other day. So this guy hears about this amazing tailor who makes suits for like the most powerful people in the world. So um, he got a big bonus. So he, he hires his tailor, pays him five figures, right? And he's super excited because the day has arrived when he gets to go and pick up the suit. He goes to see the suit, the tailor pulls it out, and it just looks like crap. <laughs> and he's like, oh my God, what is this? The tailor's like, wait a second, just put it on, bear with me, put it on. So the guy puts it on, it still looks like crap. And then the tailor's like, but you got to go like this. And he kind of contorts his body and twists it up. And the guy's like, okay, this guy came highly recommended, so I'll try. He does this. <laughs> and then suddenly, miraculously, the suit looks amazing. And he's like, okay, I guess I got to stay like this. I got to stay contorted. <laughs> he walks out of the store and two women see him. And the first woman looks at him and, and goes, oh, look at that poor guy. He's so contorted. And the second woman looks at him and goes, yeah, but doesn't his suit look great? <laughs> <laughs> There's so many ideas in that story. Like, what do you hear in it? I'm just curious. Well, for me, it is, it's about conformity. Um, at some level, right? It's about starting with the premise that there's this amazing tailor and I have to spend a bunch of money in order to access what they're offering. And then the idea that in order to, you know, have that look, I have to be contorted and conformed to some very particular version of myself in order to get the benefit. I think it, I don't know, it's kind of a sad story. (laughs) It is a sad story. It's a pretty cynical story. It's about how motivated we are to look good, right? And how we're willing to consort ourselves in order to do that. And I think a lot of times we do that with jobs, job titles, right? Right. I mean, where where my mind went as you were telling it is just that like in 
perspective taking, there is nothing that's true. <laughs> and it's like that guy is like poor guy. And that tailor is maybe a great tailor. And that what like, it's like all of it, all of it is true for the person who's observing it. And like, also that might've been a shitty suit in an uncomfortable position. And that guy might've been a sad person because who spends five figures on a suit, you know, like there's a lot in it that just feels like everybody's right and nothing's true. Right, right, right. There's also the judgy part of me that immediately er during the story was like, why can't the tailor make a suit that looks good from all angles? (laughs) I mean, this guy's done a lot of money. Yeah, like be better, sir. (laughs) So that's my my perfectionism coming out. Gareth, what is your take from that story? Um, It's been sort of a kaleidoscope of takes over the last week, but one of them is how, yeah, how other people often give us these roles that we're supposed to play, how we can sort ourselves to do it, how we want to look good. But I love what you're saying, actually, Rodney, about how there are all these elements that play in the story and you can interpret it in different ways. Totally. Yeah. When we're talking about egos and leadership and organization, that's very much how it is. Yeah. I felt like you were switching tracks for us to identity and I want to hear more about that. You know, it's a huge part of ego, right? Ego is largely about this agenda our minds have to maintain a sense of certainty and coherence and so on. Identity is a major way we do that. We say, I am this kind of person, or I'm good because of this. And even saying, like, I'm not good at this is a way of maintaining a sense of coherence and safety. If I'm not good at this, I'm not going to put myself out there and do it. Yeah, and be at risk. Yeah. It's that old fixed mindset saying. Is there a positive role for identity? I'm just curious because it feels like a lot of times when we start talking about the roles we play and the hats we wear, we go to the negative place. Is there is there something positive about identity and this is who I am and this is not who I am? Totally. I think that's the risk when we're talking about a lot of this stuff. I know for me, definitely trained as a psychologist, I tend to view things through the question of what's pathological here. But the reality is ego and identity can be very positive forces. It just depends on how you're doing it, right? They're like, if ego is the ability to balance forces acting on you, having a strong ego is, is the ability to balance those forces well and flexibly, right? right. If, if identity is a way you make sense out of the world, having a, a positive identity is, means having a positive way of making sense out of yourself, right? right? Staying focused on what matters to you. So with that in mind, we have folks listening who have, you know, been with us now for well over half an hour. We've, we've kind of poked at the edges of, of the ego and identity, you know, problem and, and possibility. If somebody wants to go do something this week and they're like, all right, Aaron, Rodney, Gareth, I'll give you, you know, five minutes a day to just move forward on, on this issue and, and kind of start to try to tame, uh, you know, my, my natural instincts around ego and identity. What's something they can do? What's one or two things that, that someone listening can go do to, to see some real benefit in their life? For me, awareness is the fundamental tool. Like becoming, specifically becoming aware of your own emotional experience um, in the moment of challenge. Um, for that reason, I'm a huge fan of whiteboards and journals, right? As the act of putting your sort of mental content out there in front of you is a, is a really powerful tool for getting some perspective on it and being able Mm -hmm. to see how the different pieces fit together, right? Our experience is generally too complex to hold in working memory. And then I think the next step is becoming aware of your emotional experience and then practice holding it lightly, which means with some flexibility, with some perspective, and sort of asking, okay, what else is is here that I'm less aware of, that I'm less willing to see? What's another way to look at this? 
And while you're doing that, then starting to ask the question, what really matters most here, right? If I were to balance all these forces most effectively, what sort of rises to the top as the most important thing to take care of? And then I'd say the other thing, since we're talking about ego and ego is such a self-focused thing, is if you don't know what to do, consider asking for help, right? Get outside of your own ego in your own head, ask for help. When you say um, ask for help, I want to go back to the whiteboard thing in a second. But when you say go ask Mm -hmm. for help, what kind of help would you ask for? For somebody who's like, I suspect that this might be an issue for me, but I have no idea because (laughs) I have giant blinders on and I'm concerned. Like what, what would you advise? Um, You should go to the person who's the most rigid and judgmental person you can think of. (laughs) (laughs) But that's actually a good test of your flexibility, right? right? Because if you do that um, and you can hear their perspective, a lot of times you will learn a lot about your own reactions and where your own rough spots are. Hearing something that you don't want to hear contains a huge amount of information, right? Because what it says is where there's emotion, there's something really important happening, mm-hmm. like invariably. Either there's something important happening outside of your environment that you need to take care of, like there's something you really do need to be afraid of or fight for, or it means you have this big story that you're carrying around, right? That's not in tune with reality. And that's going to influence your behavior if you're not aware of it. And so taking account for it when you're making decisions. Yeah. That's That's interesting. Just to go back, because uh, Gareth has used the whiteboarding tool with me. And like, I'm obviously not nearly as skilled at it, but seeing one's own narrative uh, just written down on a whiteboard with like connected (laughs) lines between it is both very humbling and very useful in terms of creating insight because you start to realize like how much we use language to like avoid what's at the core of the situation or to describe our way out of it or to like rationalize all of the surrounding factors. And then when someone just presents you with a diagram of your bullshit, you're like, oh my, Uh, look at how straightforward that is. (laughs) That's hard to, that's hard to look at. But, um, but also, uh, I mean, in, in addition to its utility, just for insight, um, around what the core of the issue is, the the utility of how much extraneous nonsense we do around admiring our own problems and like building on building houses on a foundation of our problems is really fascinating and something that really comes through. Yeah. Can I play with this idea? There's something interesting here I've been thinking about. Sure. There's this paradox where if you ask what is an organization, right? It's, it's a bunch of people trying to do something together that they couldn't do alone, right? And how well they do that is sort of a function of how well do they solve problems and make decisions together and so on. And how well they do those big high-level things is a function of how well they can listen to each other and get all the perspectives onto the table so that they can make the wisest possible decision, right? And how well they do that is a function of how well they manage their own egos and their own psychology. Right, so that they have space for other people. <laughs> and yet there's this paradox where even though psychology sort of runs through every level of an organization, it often seems like we keep that psychology very private. And I'm sure there are good reasons for that. But it's almost like as we move out into public, the most important thing for how well the organization works is also the most private thing in many ways. And right. as we move outside of ourselves, there's this perverse incentive to keep the most important thing more secret, right? And more veiled. Right. Does this make sense what I'm trying to say here? 
It totally makes sense. Well, I mean, I feel like it's very related to like the work that Aaron and I end up doing in systems, which is just about (laughs) designing a container for those conversations. Because given the sensitivity of them, given like the historical associations with them and given the vulnerability required to have them, if there's not an express place and time and structure and design for that shit to out, it is not happening on its own. It's happening in like the darkest corners of the place. Exactly. I love that. I I read this book called The Trusted Advisor, and I can't remember who wrote it right now, but the one idea I took from it, and I'm sure there are lots of good ideas in it, is that there's a difference between the personal and the private. And I love that idea because it Mm. says, you know, sure, there are things you may want to keep to yourself legitimately, but there's so much stuff that's personal to us and, and, and personal to our psychology that we really need to be sharing effectively in public to work together with other people well. That's I think that's totally. really smart. Yeah. And I don't know, like, Aaron, I feel like often what we hear is like those things are just all grouped together as like stuff that does not belong inside of our corporate persona. Right. The soft stuff right. is all grouped together. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that what we play with all the time is how much of that exposure and vulnerability and awareness has to come from the individual and how, how much of it can be modeled and encouraged and solicited by the system. And I think there's this great interplay between the two where you can show up to a group or a community that operates with a high level of candor and vulnerability and personal sharing, et cetera. And within a few weeks, kind of be acclimated to that um, without having done a lot of quote unquote personal work. Um, You can also go do a lot of work on yourself and show up to a system and provoke it. So I think that I like the idea of, of both of those things happening more um, rather than trying to come at it from one angle or the other. I think that's brilliant. I think that's right on. Because again, one of the main things we know from psychology, this is probably the big finding, is that our psychology responds to our environment. The culture of the team is the environment for our psychology. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about psychological safety, for example, with a team, what that means is it's team environment where people are able to flexibly say and listen to whatever needs to be said related to the work that's being done. Yeah, and it's contextual. Like there are environments in the same day where I feel highly psychologically safe and environments where I don't. And it's not that I haven't done the work. It's that the communities are fundamentally different and and I'm operating in those contexts. Yeah. And the thing this conversation brings up for me, Gareth, that we struggle so much with, or I struggle so much with, and I would love like your hot take on is in so many interactions at work, it is so difficult to separate like the personal from the objective. And as a result, there's so much conflict avoidance that happens in the workplace. And what, like, it's such a, um, like, it's such a jumble in my mind of this idea that we both don't want to shed light on the personal and have those conversations in a productive way. And we also don't want to just hear someone else's opinion or have a mistake corrected or whatever in a way that is impersonal. Like, it's like, It's like, we don't want to do either. We like want to assign all of the meaning and um, personal and emotional stuff to places it doesn't belong. And we want to pretend that it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. What do we do about that? Because like I have so many interactions every day where it's like, yeah, that's like what I'm saying to you is just a 
it's just my reaction or it's just a thing that I'm seeing or a thing that I'm noticing or a suggestion or advice. Like I'm not, it's, I'm not trying to tell you that like you're wrong or you've done poorly, or I think you're stupid. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to like share a piece of information with you, but it all gets like tangled together. The phrase that comes to mind for me is the struggle is real. It actually, if I'm being totally honest, this makes me want to reframe how we approach this whole conversation. Because there's this tendency to sort of pathologize being, having an ego, right? And being rigid. And yet we are navigating this world where people have all kinds of opinions that aren't necessarily useful for us. So having some defenses up is wise and being guarded in many situations is wise. It makes us more successful, right? Right. And it's this thing where we've made this environment where we have to be guarded and there's value in that and yet it also oppresses us <laughs> <laughs> like every great organizational design space it is a paradox it is a paradox <laughs> yeah which is lovely and i think that's the whole thing about balancing and managing all these polarities awesome well gareth thank you so much for joining us thanks Aaron. thanks rodney thanks guys we'll be back next week with more brave new work <laughs>